Before I start this episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 82 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been a bumper week for financial crime news again this week, with all areas once again competing to outperform one another in terms of producing the most volume of material. I think we should just crack on. The sooner we get started, the sooner we can all get on with our lives. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast right there in the description We start this week with sanctions news. The sanctions news starts in Japan and the continued response to the actions taken by Hamas in Israel early last month. Following action taken globally, the Japanese foreign minister announced sanctions against nine individuals and a corporation with links to the terrorist organization. In Allied news, the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of the Treasury, Wally Adeyemo, has visited the UK this week for meetings with UK Treasury officials and others. At the meetings, Adeyemo announced further sanctions against Hamas, uh, particularly in relation to financing, while stressing that sanctions should not impede the flow of legitimate humanitarian aid. He also spoke about continuing action against Russia for the actions which it's taken in Ukraine. Link to that press release is in the podcast description. Sticking with the US, the Office of Foreign Assets Control has taken further action to strengthen sanctions against third country entities supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Entities in China, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates have been sanctioned for supplying military hardware and components which Russia has been unable to supply given the scale of sanctions imposed upon it. As the press release provides, While the Treasury will continue to work with governments to address potential sanctions and export control vulnerabilities together in a spirit of bilateral cooperation, the Treasury will not hesitate to take action to prevent Russia from using the US and international financial systems to sustain its war of aggression against Ukraine. The US has also, this time in the guise of the State Department, designated Guatemalan public officials on grounds of being involved in significant corruption. In further news, the US, acting in concert with international partners including the UK, has sanctioned arms dealers and military financiers sustaining the regime in Myanmar. Finally from the US, the Financial Services Committee is to hold a hearing this week on the 8th of November at 10am to review the sanctions regime as well as efforts to combat terrorist financing. Links to these stories can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions news this week in France, the authorities have detained sanctioned founder of Alpha Bank, Russian Alexei Kuzmikev. The allegation is that Kuzmikev has been involved in money laundering and sanctions violations. In the Netherlands, a Dutch court has sentenced a Russian citizen in absentia for breaching EU sanctions. The individual is identified as Dmitry K and believed to have returned to Russia 
after his release pending trial in 2022. He was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment and his company fined £200,000. That's it for sanctions news this week. Now we move on to consider money laundering news. This week's money laundering news starts with a busy week for the Financial Action Task Force and really the fallout from its recent plenary. I mentioned some of the outcomes in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Well, this week we note that Jordan, Cayman Islands, Panama and Albania have been removed from jurisdictions under increased monitoring, the so-called Grey List. Those still on the list are Barbados, Bulgaria, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Croatia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Gibraltar, Haiti, Jamaica, Mali, Mozambique, Nigeria, Philippines, Senegal, South Africa, South Sudan, Syria, Tanzania, Turkey, Uganda, United Arab Emirates, Vietnam, and Yemen. The high-risk jurisdictions subject to a call for action, the so-called blacklist, remain the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Iran, and Myanmar. Other pearls of wisdom which came out of the plenary include, as we mentioned last week, um, rules to freeze, seize and confiscate criminal property more effectively, to make amendments to the FATF Recommendation 8 intended to protect non-profit organisations, and to publish a report on illicit financial flows on cyber-enabled fraud. That will be published, I believe, later this month. We'll see if that happens. There are two further bits of news from that plenary on which I'll give more information now. The first is that the FATF has announced something at the plenary relating to the beneficial ownership and transparency arrangements. Now, I mentioned this last week, but they provided more detail this week. It amounts to a consultation on beneficial ownership and the transparency of legal arrangements concerning amendments to Recommendation 25 of the FATF 40. The FATF seeks responses, quotes, from companies and other legal persons, financial institutions, designated non-financial businesses and professions, and non-profit organisations. However, contributions from other interested stakeholders are also solicited. In particular, comments are welcome on the following specific issues. First, are there any other purposes of express trusts beyond what have been set out in the guidance. Secondly, are there any other potential scenarios concerning beneficiaries that should be included in the guidance? Thirdly, what other activities may be included in the definition of trust administration, if any? Fourthly, are there any other additional mechanisms available to ensure access to beneficial ownership information in the context of trusts? Fifthly, what are the suggested approaches to identify, assess and mitigate the money laundering and terrorist financing risks linked with different types of legal arrangements, trusts governed under domestic law, foreign trusts administered in the country, and foreign trusts having sufficient links with the country. What trends can be identified? Sixthly, under which circumstances would a non-professional trustee be chosen? Which types of trusts are typically administered by such non-professional trustees? And seventhly and finally, how can countries achieve the obligations of non-professional trustees more effectively? Responses should be received by the FATF by 
6pm Central European time on the 8th of December and the FATF will consider responses at its plenary in February 2024. Uh, other bits of news from the plenary on which more detail has once again been provided this week. Again, it was just thrown out there at the plenary last week and the FATF has gone to the trouble of finding or providing more information this week. It's a report this time on the dangers of crowdfunding, which is being used for illegitimate purposes. As the FATF press release provides, quote, The vast majority of crowdfunding activity is legitimate, but events around the world have demonstrated that it can also be exploited for illegal purposes. This includes terrorists and terrorist groups who can exploit fundraising platforms and crowdfunding activities on social media to seek funding for their terrorist cause from a global audience. The crowdfunding landscape is likely to evolve further with the introduction of new payment technologies and the proliferation of online platforms supporting different types of crowdfunding activity. However, globally, there is insufficient understanding of the risks related to this sector, and because of this, regulation varies from country to country. The FATF report analyses how terrorists misuse crowdfunding platforms. A link to the report, as well as the other work done by the FATF this week, is available in the podcast description. Now, that's it for money laundering. And to fraud, and there's a good wedge of fraud news this week. We'll start in the United Kingdom, where the payment systems regulator has published its first authorised push payment scams performance report. The report details how well banks and other payment firms performed in tackling APP scams and how they treated those who fell victim in 2022. The report draws on data first relating to the reimbursement to victims from the largest 14 banking groups. Secondly, how much money is sent from each payment firm as a result of APP fraud, again from the largest 14 banking groups. And thirdly, how much money is received by each payment firm as a result of APP fraud, which covers all payment firms in the UK. In terms of the volume of cases where there was full reimbursement, TSB fully reimbursed 94% of the APP scam cases reported to it, followed by Nationwide, which fully reimbursed 91% of cases, and Barclays, which fully reimbursed 79% of cases. Of 6%, only 6% of cases reported to Monzo were fully reimbursed, while Dansk Bank fully reimbursed 7%, and AIB fully reimbursed 12%. By value of APP losses, TSB reimbursed 91% of app fraud losses to customers in 2022, while Nationwide reimbursed 78% and HSBC reimbursed 73% of app fraud losses. AIB Group reimbursed 10% of APP fraud losses. Dance Bank reimbursed 20% of APP fraud losses. Monzo reimbursed 22% of app fraud losses. The report shows how much money customers at the 14 major UK banks lost to APP fraud for every million pounds they sent and how many app fraud payments were there were per million transactions sent. The top four firms with the highest 
sending fraud rate include TSB, Santander, Metrobank and Monzo. For every £1 million TSB customers sent in 2022, £348 of that was lost to APP fraud. For Santander customers, that is £322 per £1 million lost to APP fraud. And for both Metro Bank and Monzo Bank customers, that is £280 per £1 million lost to APP fraud. In comparison, for every £1 million sent from customers of AIB Group, only £23 was lost to APP fraud. For every £1 million transactions made in 2022 by Monzo customers, 141 were reported as APP fraud. For Starling Bank and Metro Bank customers, 127 transactions in every million were reported as APP fraud. And for Santander, for every £1 million transactions made, 117 were reported as APP scams. In contrast, for every £1 million transactions made by Dansk Bank customers, only 39 were reported as fraud. I suppose the idea is that bank customers should be able to build a picture of the attitude of institutions to reimbursement as well as the systems which they operate to protect customers from fraud. Of course, whether the data will be used in that way is a matter of some debate, but I'd certainly be surprised if the likelihood of fraud and the attitude of the institution to fraud and its customers would influence individuals too greatly over whether they might shift their bank account. Bank accounts and our loyalty to banks are notoriously sticky things. Anyway, the link to the press release, which also contains a link to the report, is in the podcast description. The final bits of fraud news this week are first that the UK Security Minister Tom Tugendhat has given a speech on the subject of fraud and artificial intelligence. Been crawling all over the news this week, artificial intelligence. There have been a couple of conferences hosted in the UK on artificial intelligence. The transcript, nevertheless, of Tom Tugendhat's fairly unremarkable speech is linked in the podcast description. And finally, finally, on fraud this week, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on seven counts of fraud, conspiracy and money laundering. From arrest to conviction in less than a year. UK Serious Fraud Office take note. Sentencing will take place at a later date. Now that's it for fraud news this week. Now to bribery and corruption news. And again, there's a decent wedge of this too this week. This week's bribery and corruption news starts in the United States, where a former attorney has been convicted of bribery in relation to a recreational marijuana business. As the press release provides, Sean O'Donovan, 56, of Somerville, Massachusetts, paid a bribe to influence the Medford police chief in connection with O'Donovan's client's recreational marijuana business. In February 2021, O'Donovan approached Individual One, a close relative of the chief, and offered to pay Individual One $25,000 to speak with the chief about his client's anticipated application to sell recreational marijuana in Medford. At the time, the chief had recently been appointed to serve on a committee to rank such applications on behalf of Medford's mayor, who would ultimately select three applicants to open retail marijuana stores in Medford. After Individual One informed the chief of O'Donovan's corrupt offer, the chief immediately alerted federal authorities. O'Donovan is due to be sentenced on the 7th of February 2024 
The link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Staying in the US, the Department of Justice has announced charges of bribery against a bank employee. Oscar Marcello Nunes Flores, who worked for an unidentified international financial institution, is alleged to have accepted bribes in exchange for facilitating a scheme which allowed drug money to be laundered through the bank. The link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, other bribery and corruption news this week. You may remember that in episode 73 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, so we're going back a bit now, we reported on news that the National Crime Agency in the UK had announced charges against, well, bribery charges against uh, Daizani Alison Mudweke, for who was a former Nigerian minister who had also served as president of the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. Well, this week it's been announced that Alison Madweke's case has been adjourned until November 2025, while it's also believed that the Nigerian authorities are seeking her extradition so she can face charges in her home country. Certainly keep an eye on that one. Now we'll stay... We'll stay in the UK, and the announcement by the Serious Fraud Office, the SFO, that it is to delay a decision on charges relating to 11 former staff of Glencore PLC. You'll you'll recall that Glencore Energy UK Limited agreed a deferred prosecution agreement of over £280 million in November 2022. We covered it on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast after an SFO investigation revealed it paid... 29 million US dollars in bribes to gain preferential access to oil across Africa. The delay in relation to the individual prosecutions is understood to be down to the fact that the SFO has received new evidence which it needs to process and assess. We'll be back to this one in 2024. Final piece of bribery and corruption news from the UK Well, it comes from an unlikely source, I suppose, and that is that it's the public inquiry into the COVID pandemic and its impact in the UK. The United Kingdom is currently having a public inquiry on all aspects of the COVID pandemic and how it affected the United Kingdom. This week, evidence was provided by Dominic Cummings, who was the chief advisor to then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, As well as the inevitable sniping at the incompetence of Johnson and others, there was one interesting titbit alleging corruption, and that piqued my interest because the sniping became quite tedious after a while. During the pandemic, the UK government sanctioned significant spends on advertising in UK newspapers. This was ostensibly to remind the public of the prevailing guidance, even if the government and those working closely with its members didn't always follow it. But suggestions this week are that the adverts may have had a corrupt intent. Cummings highlighted what he considered possible corruption in Johnson's relationship with the Evening Standard, its then editor, George Osborne, who was the former Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK. And the Evening Standard, of course, was owned by, or is owned by, Tory peer Evgeny Lebedev, who was recommended for the peerage by none other than Boris Johnson. Cummings is quoted as saying, when examined by Barrister for the inquiry, quotes, here we go, 
There were specific concerns about his relationship with the Barclays in the Telegraph. The Barclay brothers owned the Telegraph. They don't anymore. They lost it um, recently, and one of the Barclays brothers has passed away. And there were specific concerns and also suspicions of possible corruption, his words, in terms of his relationship with George Osborne and funneling money to the Evening Standard. This story hasn't been widely picked up in the mainstream press, <laughs> unsurprisingly, but it has got a decent level of traction from other sources. And the Byline Times actually ran a story on this um, a while ago, certainly last year, I think it was, or maybe even earlier than that. So I think there's an, this is an interesting line of questioning, certainly a fertile line of questioning, when Johnson appears before the inquiry later this year. I tried to find some information on when Johnson will appear before the COVID inquiry, and the most detail I could get was that it would be before Christmas. Well, I'll certainly be watching it. I wasn't going to pay much attention to it, but I certainly will be now to see if there is any agile questioning of Johnson and these allegations which have been made by Cummings. Anyway, that'll do for that. To Europe now, and in France, the President Emmanuel Macron and the French Secretary of State for European Affairs, Laurence Boone, are urging the European Union to create an independent anti-corruption authority to combat corruption across the institutions of the European Union. This comes in the wake of a range of corruption scandals which have blighted the oper operational reputation of some of the institutions of the EU over recent months. As yet, there is no response to the proposal from the EU, but more might be expected on this issue in coming months. On the subject of the EU and corruption, Ukraine is pushing through anti-corruption legislation in a bid to secure its EU accession talks. Long way to go on this one, and I think they have a lot more on their plate at the moment. But it's interesting to see that their keenness to exceed is what can only be regarded as a failure of Russian foreign policy objectives. But there you go. We'll see what happens on that one. Long way to go. And finally on bribery and corruption this week, Laura Holgate, the US ambassador to the Vienna office of the United Nations, has delivered remarks on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the UN Convention Against Corruption. I've linked it in the podcast description. Now, a bit of market abuse news before we pass to consider the cyber attack news this week. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority has obtained a confiscation order against Timothy Coleman, former Chief Financial Officer of Red Centric PLC, following his conviction in February 2022 for false accounting and making misleading statements to the market. As the press release provides, Red Centric, an IT service provider and AIM-listed company, issued false and misleading unaudited interim results in November 2015 and false and misleading audited final year results in June 2016. Both statements materially overstated Redcentric's cash position and consequently downplayed its debt. Shareholders suffered losses when the true position was revealed. Coleman, who is serving five and a half years imprisonment, will need to find £355,369 to satisfy the confiscation order. order. <laughs> Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, the British government has indicated that it plans to regulate crypto assets in a manner similar to traditional asset forms and that it will introduce legislation in 2024. Link to the government response is in the podcast description. 
Now, the final piece of market abuse news this week comes from Dubai, where the Dubai Financial Services Authority has fined a private bank, FFA Private Bank Dubai Limited, $370,000 for having inadequate systems and controls to identify, assess and report trades which were suspected of market abuse. Now, I said there was only a small amount of market abuse news. Now, we end with our usual skirt around cyber news. This week's cyber news starts in Canada, where the Toronto Public Library has been the subject of a cyber attack. The attack has had a limited impact on the functions of the library, and it is anticipated that a full service will be available over the course of the week. This attack on a public body is yet another example of attacks on organisations and services in this sector. Such organisations have been identified by a range of cybersecurity specialists as being especially vulnerable because of outdated systems and software and limited funds being available to upgrade any software systems which they do have. Expect more of these kind of soft target attacks which add to the schools, hospitals and other similar similar institutions which have been attacked over the last 6-12 months. In fact, I can think of a number of public authorities that have been attacked both in the United Kingdom and in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. I think the Victorian government in Australia was attacked. So they're easy targets to a degree. There are more news on library attacks coming in a moment. In the US, Stanford University is to review its cyber systems and data controls as the impact of a cyber attack which it suffered last week is assessed. The ransomware group, Akira, has threatened to release 430 gigabytes of data to the dark web. Now, a few cyber attack stories from the UK, and we start with another library, only this time it's the British Library which has reported that a cyber attack has taken a number of its services offline. Now, to be frank, I realised something was up with the British Library website earlier this week when I tried to access their thesis database, which is held on the British Library's servers. Each attempt was timed out. I tried on Friday morning again, and it still wasn't working, and I think I'll give up and wait until next week now to see what happens with that. It indicated to me that, given that it was being heavily timed out, that there was a cyber attack in place. It was still offline, as I said, on Friday morning when I checked. I'll check again next week to see if it's all well. The National Cyber Security Centre in the UK has been working with the British Library. How do I know this? Because the British Library tweeted it this afternoon. And they're trying desperately to get to the bottom of it. According to the tweet, they got a lot of their services back online. Now, on the subject of the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK, it has updated its glossary of common cyber security terms. The link to that is in the podcast description. Happy reading, folks. Boeing. The aerospace company is investigating what it describes as a cyber incident which has impacted its parts and distribution business. The Lockbit Cyber Gang claimed at the end of last week that it had obtained a wealth of personal and sensitive data in the attack, which it would post online unless a ransom payment was made. Now, on the subject of ransomware, the Counter Ransomware Initiative, which is essentially a loose, fairly loose collective of a number of sovereign nation-states, has issued a statement 
denouncing ransomware and those who perpetrate it. Well, frankly, if it's the counter-ransomware initiative, you'd expect a statement denouncing ransomware. If it were not, you'd think something was seriously wrong with it. Anyway, as the announcement provides, ransomware payments undermine the ransomware business model, which I think is an interesting turn of phrase. Anyway, it undermines the ransomware business model and disrupts criminal activity. We will not tolerate the exhortative actions of these cybercriminals who too often act with seeming impunity. Therefore, we strongly discourage anyone from paying a ransomware demand. Like I said, like so many of these statements, it's fairly unremarkable. And if you want to read that unremarkable statement in full, you can find it in the podcast description. What else has been happening? Well, the World Economic Forum has, once again, taken time this week to remind us of the largest distributed denial-of-service attack. The World Economic Forum, as we reported in last week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, has sought to heighten awareness of the attack, and this week again it's published a further information note, this time by Akshay Joshi, who is Head of Industry and Partnerships at the Centre for Cybersecurity at the World Economic Forum. The link to it is in the podcast description. On related news from global organisations or pan-national organisations this week, Interpol's Assistant Director of Cybercrime Operations, Bernardo Pillot, or Pillow, has said that world leaders need to work together to combat cybercrime. The comments were made at the Global Cybersecurity Forum in Riyadh. And finally this week... Reports from New Zealand that the National Cybersecurity Centre has, for the first time, identified that financially motivated cyber attacks outnumbered those originated by nation states. While the number of attacks dropped overall, this noted shift is a bit of an eyebrow raiser, and it will be interesting to see if a similar pattern starts to emerge in Western nations generally or in the membership of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a genuinely great week. <laughs>